Hello and welcome to Conscious TV. My name is Ian McNay and today we have another programme in our series on non-duality and our guest is Wayne Lickerman. Hi Wayne. Hello. Now something very significant happened to you didn't it? You were living a, let's say a normal life mid-30s and you were I say normal wasn't normal in one way but that's <laughs> quite excessive. Normal. But you, you were drinking a lot, taking some drugs, playing a lot of cards and I think you have on a four-day binge, and then something happened that really changed your life. Yes. Um, at the end of this four-day binge, which was the end of a 19-year period of alcoholism and drug addiction, the gambling was secondary, the, um, I had a moment of absolute transformation in which... This compulsion I had had for the last 19 years disappeared, and I felt it go. I watched it go, and uh, I was horrified by it because I didn't want to be sober. You see, but so were you drunk at the time? I was. I was quite drunk, but it, I became literally instantly sober, and uh, I knew that that period was over that I couldn't, I wasn't able to drink or do drugs anymore. And it was, it was very strange. <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing to happen that you're, that you're drunk and, yes. and suddenly you get a kind of a life-changing spiritual experience. And many people work for years and years and years with meditation and workshops and teachers to find this point, yes. get a taste of this point, and it happens to you because you drink too much. Yes. It's pretty, it's ir really it's pretty ironic, isn't it? <laughs> now, I, I want to be clear that this was the point at which my spiritual seeking began. This was not the end point of the spiritual seeking. It was what I would call the crack in the wall. Uh, called the wall of the ego or whatever. It, because up till that moment, I was absolutely convinced I was the master of my destiny, that I was making it happen. But when this event happened, and it transformed me to the extent that uh, I went from someone who was drinking a, a fifth of alcohol a day and, and doing a gram of cocaine every day just to, to, to get through the day, that... To, to to have this disappear and my not wanting it to disappear meant that something else was operative in the universe. And, I mean, I, I couldn't argue that. But you saw this clearly at the time, did you? No, I, I had a sense of it. I just... And I was fortunate to meet someone who had had a similar experience. You see? Right. And... Uh, who had been, quote, struck sober. And he was able to share his experience with me. And because what I wanted to find out, what be, I became intensely curious about, was what force in the universe was there that could do this to me? But you see, that's a very intelligent response. And not everybody would have that. No. But that was my response. Yes, yeah. And did you stop drinking straight away? Yeah, no. In that moment, the obsession that compelled me to drink disappeared. So, okay. So it was the obsession 
that went, yes. which m- means you could stop drinking because it because the obsession, the reason, had disappeared. That's right. And presumably it was the same with the drugs as well, was it? Absolutely. No, that it went as a package. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a gift from God in a way, wasn't it? It felt very much like a gift. I, yeah. We can call it grace, if you like. It, it felt like grace, though it, I mean, it, I perceive it as grace now. At the time, I thought it was horrible. I didn't like people who didn't drink. I didn't associate with people that didn't drink. My whole social life was around the bars and the drug houses. And so I wasn't happy with this state of affairs right off the bat. So what kind of response did you get from your old drinking pals? Well, when I mean, they didn't have very much... I didn't have very much in common with them anymore. What we shared primarily <laughs> was our drinking. Yeah. That's what we did. Yeah. We, we did, drank and did drugs. When you stop doing that, uh, there's not really much reason to, to associate any longer. And were you functioning reasonably well in life in other ways? You, you, would, you think you had a business at the time? Actually, uh, my business had failed. I had been uh, a, a bartender and a failed bartender and... And things were not going particularly well for me yeah. at, at that time. Uh, I had the remnants of a business, but it was kept in, in place by a business partner who was able to work. But I, I, I was pretty much a mess, but I couldn't see it. So what happened was that when the obsession was removed and the, the clouds cleared, I could see what a mess I was. I was in horrible shape physically yeah. and, and I mean, spiritually, emotionally, I was bankrupt. Okay, so what happened next? Well, as I said, I began to be very interested in what power in the universe could transform me in this way. And this started what we'll call a spiritual search. I began to read everything. Uh, I was reading, I, I was reading Buddhists, Sufis, Christian mystics, uh, Taoists, uh, across the board. And uh, this friend I, I mentioned had a, a large spiritual library. And what he introduced me to, he says, come graze, graze in it. He said, pick whatever interests you, take it home, if if it if it interests you, read it. If not, come back and get something else. And that's what I did. So I I began to to experiment and and look into all of these things, which are certainly familiar to most spiritual seekers, but was totally unfamiliar to me. And what books particularly drew you at the time? The books that drew me uh, were were the Taoist texts. Uh, the Tao Te Ching drew me very strongly. Chuang Tzu drew me very strongly. Uh, I was interested in in some of the uh, some of the Buddhist things. Thich Nhat Han. I read Ram Das. Um, those kinds of things spoke to me. And then did you try some workshops and talks as well, or you just? I went to reading? yes, I I went to a few uh, workshops and talks. I went to hear Ram Das speak. I went to some conferences and things. Began to do Tai Chi. Started 
meditation practice. So I, I was trying. It was it was like walking through a spiritual bazaar, you know, like a Turkish <laughs> bazaar or something. And there were all these people going, "Oh, try this! This is a very fine practice, sir. You'll enjoy this very much." And I'm, okay, well, and I was game. I was game to try just about anything. It must have been a really exciting time. It actually, was. it was. Uh, it was marvelous, and uh, and for two years, I was intensely involved in trying all kinds of things. You know, it really almost didn't matter what it was. Just uh, bring it on, <laughs> bring it on. So. And then I think you went to the first American talk by Ramesh Balzakai, didn't you? Yes, it was interesting because. Um, we had gone, a friend of mine, this friend who had introduced me to all these books and things, uh, we had gone to hear this Ram Das, um, you know, the, the Timothy Leary compatriot, yes, that Ram Das. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, and he was involved with the Seva Foundation and doing talks for, for years to raise money for them. And so I uh, attended with my friend, one of these, and he got on the mailing list. And the fellow who brought Ramesh to the country, and Ramesh is, is my guru, this subsequently became my guru, the man who brought him got this mailing list, and he sent it out to my, my friend got one, and they were only charging a buck, so we said, what the hell, what do we got to lose? And we went. And Ramesh, uh, this was his first public talk ever. Was there many people there? Uh, there were probably 50, 60 people, okay. I would, I would so say. Yeah. 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 Uh, and he got up and he delivered a speech because he had been a, a banker. I'm aware of that. Yeah. He was president of a bank. In he was fact. president of the Bank yeah. of India. Yeah, yeah. And... His orientation to group, he had been talking informally at his home to people who would come and because he had three books published and people were, but there was nothing formal. So in India, people would just stop by the house and he'd serve them tea and, and they'd talk. But here, this was his first formal uh, talk about uh, Advaita and he did what he had always done in his life, which was when he was addressing a large group of people, he had written a speech. And he wrote <laughs> a speech about Advaita right. and delivered it. Yeah. And I had never heard of Advaita. I knew nothing about this, yeah. any of the Hindu-based uh, kind of non-duality. And I didn't understand a word the man said. <laughs> it all went right over my head. Yeah. Was the fact he was a banker, did that give somehow him more credence because he'd made it in the world? It, it wasn't a matter of credence. In fact, I was, after that first time, I never thought I, I would see this guy again because I was bored stiff. But I went off on a, on a business trip. My business had resurrected in those okay. two years. Yeah. Being sober helped it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it started to be successful. And uh, I was, went off to Korea on a business trip, and I came back about three weeks later, and it was as if something had bitten me in this uh, talk that Ramesh gave and had incubated in the three weeks. So I came back, and I went up uh, to hear him again. I said, There's something about that guy. 
I went up and he was speaking in a private home up in the Hollywood Hills. And it was a small group of maybe 12, 15 people gathered. And he came in and he sat down and he started to talk informally, kind of like we're talking now. And I was mesmerized. I was captivated. There was just, I knew I was in the presence of a very profound truth, Hmm. something significant. I didn't know what it was. But what happened was my heart burst open. And even though I had no intellectual comprehension whatsoever of what he was saying, in the space of my heart flowed an incredible, powerful truth. And uh, I was drawn back to that, like um, a moth to a flame. So when you say your heart broke open, what was the, the feeling there? What was the emotional or... It was, it was a, a sense of love. I right. mean, it was, like, it was very much like falling in love, where, I mean, I hope you've had that experience in your life where you've met someone... Absolutely. ...and you just, you can't help but think, you can't yeah. stop thinking about them, and you feel this this desire to, to be with them and, and to, to, to experience the quality of their presence. I've, all of that was there, you mm. see. And so I, I, I couldn't stay away. I had to go back. And as I went back, of course, the teaching, the, the pointers of the teaching started to click in, mm. in me. Because I guess you had a good mind. You had a you you know you were successful in business. You'd read a lot, so you had the framework to absorb and develop the ideas that he was uh, that he was talking about. And from that, you could then build a bigger picture somehow. Right, right, yeah. And then one day he said, I don't know how long this was, but one day he said that Wayne is giving a talk tomorrow. Oh, that's quite a bit later. That's quite right? a bit later. Yes. Okay. You see, at that time. Um, that first year that he, he came, this was now 22 years ago. Uh, in that first, in that, that first year, it was all about me getting as much as I possibly could get from him, from the teaching. I was just like a sponge, just trying to to get more. So you felt like a separate me on your path moving somewhere and you felt that he could help you find yourself or develop yourself or whatever was that how it felt to you certainly yeah certainly and the separate me uh remains to this day okay and by a separate me i want to be very clear what i'm talking about the separate me that was there then and is there now is the me that is named Wayne, that has a history that is associated with this particular body. That's the me that learns, that experiences, that thinks, that feels, that talks. That me has continued from my birth through that experience to this moment. But there's a lot of people here who teach non-duality yes. would say that when the big event happens, right. they disappear and they don't exist. Yes. Well, 
that's a an interesting way to talk about it and it's I prefer to talk about it differently and to be more specific about what disappears. That, because to me, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That there is a me, a functional me, that responds. And it is a, a programmed instrument, if you will, okay. that it has, by my genetics and my uh, environmental conditioning, I do things. I talk, I think, I feel. And that me has to remain in order for there to be functioning. But it's also changing, isn't it? And, and oh, absolutely. This is a, because the conditioning is ongoing. We're learning, we're experiencing, we're seeing all the time, which changes the organism. And you're also unconditioning, as you had with your big experience. That's... Well, that's just, that's just a change in the conditioning. If we look at the whole thing as conditioning, everything that happens is conditioning, then the, the organism changes by this new event. So this, this new insight, this new event has changed the programming, if you will, of the organism, which is okay. the genetics plus the environmental conditioning combined to make the programming. So we can say the programming is constantly changing as the conditioning changes and as the, the organism itself physically changes. As you grow older, as your hormones change, your, your outlook, the way that the organism responds, changes. Now, what is absent in this enlightenment and what, as I talk about it, which may be different from the way other guests have talked about it, but the way I talk about it, what is absent is the sense of personal authorship. Now, this is what arises in you at the age of two and a half, where suddenly this organism stops feeling as if it's part of, I mean, that it, it simply is, and begins to feel that I am an independent entity capable of making things happen from my own energy, because I'm independent and powerful. I call that, for short, the false sense of authorship. Okay. Okay. And it is that which makes suffering in life. And it is that which disappears in enlightenment. What remains in enlightenment is the functioning organism that continues to do things. You're using the word enlightenment. Yes. Now... Some people would say there's a, there's a lot of stages to or even within enlightenment. Right. Do you see it as something that comes as an event and then essentially someone's got it or hasn't got it as the case may be? Right. Or do you also see it as something that happens as a gradual process? What I see in my definition is that the 
process is the journey to the edge of the cliff. Okay. Okay. The final step off the cliff is instant and irrevocable and results okay. in the death of that which was progressing. But in your case, something happened without any journey or without oh, no, any no. conscious journey. No, no. When we talk about this, this uh, uh, moment of awakening, if you will, in which the seeking awakened in me, that was not enlightenment. Okay, that's the beginning of a journey. That is the beginning of a spiritual journey that we call a spiritual journey. What, what is understood now is that everything that went before that moment and after that moment was part of the journey. Okay, so was there a particular point in your life you fell off the cliff? Yes, that was some two years after I met okay. my, my guru. Can you Ramesh. talk about that? I can, uh, but there's not a lot to talk about. Uh, it was, Falling off a cliff is quite a big business. It, it is to the extent that um, as an event, we can, it is significant to the seeker. I mean, the seeker feels, ah, this is, this is the, the thing. This is what I'm after. After the event, what is realized is that there truly, truly, truly never was any differentiation. There never was any distinction between the seeker and the enlightened one. And this is where it gets really, really difficult to talk about. Let's go and see where we go. <laughs> because it all becomes poetry now, you know, and it is it is spoken as poetry, but it's heard as description because seekers want to know what it is they're in for. That's true. <laughs> what am I going to get? What's this all about? You know, what's the payoff on all this? <laughs> And any description of it is, as I say, poetic, not descriptive. And so I'm really, really hesitant to get too deeply involved in describing something that is not truly describable. What interests me far more, and which I, I is the, the entire thrust of my teaching, what I call the living teaching, is to bring people into a, a, a state of awareness that may precede the falling off the cliff. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay. And this is where one begins to see what one truly is. Now, a metaphor I, I like to use to talk about this is that of the ocean and the wave. In this metaphor, everything is ocean. And this is consciousness TV. And, and we often talk of another word for the ocean is consciousness or source or God. It, it means that it is everything. 
So this ocean is without anything else. There's no land, there's no sky, there's nothing in reference to it. It is everything. So this ocean, when it goes into movement, forms waves. The waves are the manifest universe. So each wave represents something. Be it an atom, a galaxy, a human being, we understand that as a wave. It's something that has a beginning, a duration, and an end. It has dimension, It has so we can describe it, we can catalog it, we can talk about it. That's what the wave is. It is the building block, if you will, of duality. So, but what is a wave? <laughs> a wave is only ocean. That's what's crucial in understanding this non-duality. So a wave doesn't think it's separate being a wave. A wave somehow, if it has, if it has a thinking which it doesn't have, it would think that it was part of the ocean. Okay, so a human wave, because in our analogy, everything that exists, and humans exist, is a, is a wave. So Ian is a particular wave with a particular, had a birth, has an existence, and will have a death. Along the way, Ian had, at the age of two and a half, a very extraordinary thing happen. And this is unique to human waves. That Ian, at two and a half, felt, I, Ian, am separate and independent of the ocean. Now, and I, of my own power, can make things happen. This is an extraordinary notion. But it's common to human beings. And if you talk to anybody out on the street, they'll say, well, of course you're independent. Of course you can do things. You just put your mind to them and you do them. It's never ever questioned and it's, it's, it's part of our culture, it's part of our law, it's part of our, our religions. It's everywhere. What we're pointing to in this teaching, what I call the living teaching, is back to this basic question and say, is this true? Is this wave that you are independent of the ocean? Non-duality, I mean, which is a, a blanket term for these non for these kinds of teachings, are pointing to the fact that everything is the ocean. It is I, so often misinterpreted to mean that all there is is ocean, and that the waves are an illusion of some kind. I put forth that the waves are an aspect of the ocean. That, they're an, that they do exist as part of the ocean. And so rather than denying this me, this wave, we're expanding our understanding to include me as the ocean. Because I, as the wave, 
am the ocean. And this is hard for a lot of people to get. It's because extremely hard. They will say, well, I know that I'm... I know because I made the decision to go and do this, I made the decision to start this and it worked or it didn't work. Yeah. And the way society is built in the media and everything else and personal relationships supports that. Right. So it's like a whole structure there right. supporting something that isn't true. And yes. yet the other side of that is, as a human race, we're heading towards oblivion somehow because of that as well, because we're more and more trying to get more and more for our separate selves, mm. and we're forgetting that actually we're also part of the planet, mm -hmm. and the planet is only, only finite in its resources, mm -hmm. and somehow we have to work together and appreciate what we have. And it's this thing that took me a long time to get this, but I understood one day that as a human being, basically one of my very fundamental programs is, I want to be happy. So... I try and move to what I think is going to make me happy and mm -hmm. move away mm -hmm. to what I think is going to be unpleasurable, right. give me pain or whatever. Right. And that as separate selves is what we're doing. And somehow we have lost the picture completely. So I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. but it seems to me that there's so far, the gap is so big towards what the truth is and where we are, it's almost unbridgeable. Well, um, that's certainly one perspective. I don't see it that way at all, I must tell you. What I see is that there is no gap. There is absolutely <laughs> no gap. That what okay. you are, as you are in this moment, is the ocean. That even the sense of separation is the ocean in movement. Okay. So even this this sense that I have to get mine is part of what is. So you mentioned earlier you help prepare people to move towards the edge of the cliff. How do you actually do that? Simply by continuously pointing to what is. To the the basic inseparability of what they are as the wave with the ocean. There's a kind of reminder of something that we've all forgotten. Precisely. And more than anything, it is, this, it is a support for your own investigation. So rather than it being a teaching that you internalize that you learn you 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 get the the tenets of it and then you believe it to be true it is to facilitate your own curiosity see because if the curiosity wasn't there you wouldn't be here talking about this you wouldn't we wouldn't have this conversation if you didn't have this curiosity yeah but you see what triggers the curiosity in you it was something completely unexpected in me it's more of a gradual process it just seems it's very different in certain people what it is it. but it is the story of what triggers it is different in each person okay. but if we go back to the source of what triggers something 
we very quickly come back to exactly the same animating force, the same life force that is flowing through Ian to make Ian do Ian things and is flowing through Wayne to make Wayne do Wayne things. Well, I'm not sure how to respond to that. That's why I'm not saying anything straight away. <laughs> So personality-wise, what happens? What happened to you when you fell off the cliff, personality-wise? Personality changes according to the change in conditioning. This event of falling off the cliff was something that was part of the change in the conditioning of this organism. And so it was another influence, another thing that happened. But it was one of, of many things that happens and changes the programming of the organism so that I respond differently. I can't connect a single change in my being to that event. What I can say is that after that event, there was no longer any suffering in this organism. After that, pride no longer arose. Guilt no longer arose. Because there was no longer a sense that I was the author of anything for, for there to be pride or guilt. Because pride and guilt is all comes back to the fact I was responsible for that. I made that happen. I shouldn't have done that. I could have done it differently. When that I is gone... So it's like the certain programs in the mind got wiped almost. You could say that. Because that's what suffering comes from, isn't it? It's the incessant programs in the mind saying that something should be different. That's right. And what I, I give that the name, the false sense of authorship. So I yes. put it under the umbrella. Yeah. The yeah. feeling that I am responsible. I should have done it differently. I should do it this way in the future. And it is that should, that sense of should, that produces the suffering. Hmm. Because when you, you already know your own limitations, you say, oh, you, you point to the fact, oh yeah, I decided I was going to, to start a business, and I did, and it was successful. Look, you see what I did. But you, you ignore the 50 other things you said you were going to do, and you didn't do <laughs> You only pick out the ones that, that, that support your, your uh, proposition, that you're in charge. Uh, and ignore all the times that you had great intentions, made tremendous efforts. And it didn't turn out the way that you intended it to. So you, you know that from your own, in your own, the core of your being. And you've known that since you were two and a half years old. Even though the and that's what we call the terrible twos. In in do you have kids? No, no, I don't. So what's the terrible twos? The terrible twos is a, a time in that every parent knows, and it is it is this period where the the child at roughly the age of two to two and a half suddenly starts throwing fits and tantrums and things. Okay, okay. and it and they become really 
quite difficult to deal with because the sense of authorship has taken hold. And now they're not only, now they feel as if things should be different. Before, I, they wanted something. If they didn't get it, they were unhappy. Now they're unhappy if they don't get it, but it's combined with the frustration of I, I'm powerful. I can make things happen. I should be able to get my mommy to come, but she's not coming. The universe is out of order. <laughs> Which is very different from the simple not being not getting what you want. But now everything's screwed up. Yeah. And and there's this discomfort. I should be able to make this happen. I'm powerful. But I'm but I can't. And that frustration is is what manifests in all kinds of, of behavior in, in two-year-olds until we as human beings begin to be able to manage this frustration. But it still pops out. Oh, it does throughout our lives. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the fact is that it's managing a lie. It's managing this fundamental lie that is of course supported all through your education. You should do better. You should try harder. You should do this. You should do that. Sometimes you do. And then you're rewarded. You say, ah, you know, you're good. I'm good. Everything's good. But sometimes you don't. And then the guilt arises. I should be better. I should have tried harder. I should have done it differently. Have these things completely gone in you? The guilt, the frustration, the anger, do they come up sometimes? Oh, no, no. The guilt, yes. Anger still comes up, but anger doesn't come up as a product of the sense of authorship. It comes up as a simple human characteristic. So just, again, talk about the difference. What I... People often think of sages when they talk. A sage, in my definition, is a human who, for whom the sense of personal authorship has died. That has gone over the cliff. It's gone. They often confuse sages with saints. Okay. Okay? Yep. Now, in my definition, a saint is someone whose behavior embodies the highest values of the group. So you point to someone and say, this guy is a saint, or she's a saint, because she acts in this way that we all admire, and we all hold in high regard. Now, a saint in one group, of course, is not in another, because groups have different values. values. Yeah. So a saint is all about behavior, and we and we often mistake the saint and the sage, and get very disappointed in the sage when he's not a saint, meaning that his behavior doesn't match what we think is the highest. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because in my definition, the sage is simply someone for whom there is no longer 
a sense of personal authorship. Their programming plays out. Whatever this organism has been programmed by the universe to do, it does. So is the sage a stage and moving on to be a saint? No, no, no. They're totally independent of each other. Why would that be the case? But surely the movement in consciousness is somehow going to want the sage to reach the potential of the saint. We can't even agree what a saint is. Well, (laughs) yes, but somehow we do... If you and I sat down, I'm not saying we're going to do this, we don't have the time, but we sat down and we looked at certain qualities of mankind, we'd come to some kind of consensus. I think probably most Western people would come to some kind of consensus unless they're too extreme in religion or something. And unless they're just, different. Well, <laughs> there's, there's always extremes in things. Right. And what interests me is that and this is quite quite a central point here. Yes, it is. There's sages who act sometimes in a way that appears to be quite unconscious, and they get pissed off about something and angry. And I know I, I never actually had any contact with Jay Krishnamurti, but I knew people that were very close to him, and they said he got really pissed off at times. He got used to shout at the old ladies as he called them at the front. He didn't like some of the questions, and he seemed he seemed to ask. He seemed to, he seemed to act in a very yes, a very unaware, unconscious way at times. And my question to you would be yes. Well, why is that? Because for me, there seems to be something that isn't fully developed there. No, because you have a fantasy of <laughs> what what this understanding is. You have a fantasy about when consciousness evolves. It's going to look like this, and it's going to be your picture of what is right and good. Someone else's picture is going to be different. Yeah, but maybe it's not my fantasy. It's the feeling of my truth. Maybe. You see, and I honor that in myself, and I think, well, something here... What if you're wrong? ...doesn't quite tie up. What if you're wrong? What if you don't know, Ian? Well, then I go, then I start going in my mind because at the moment I'm clear that this is something that intrigues me that doesn't quite add up. And now if I go in my mind, I can get in a whole muddle, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't want to go there at the moment. I think there's certain, there's certain, there's certain values. Say, say you went out afterwards as a sage and went out and someone annoyed you and you hit them across the faith, they were taken to hospital. On this, this is a fantasy, I know. But let's, let's say that happened, then that for me would just absolutely not add up. And you could say, well, I didn't, read your, didn't reach your expectations. You understand what I'm saying? I, I, I know, I'm sorry to give you a hypothetical situation, but there's certain values that we have, that, I, that certainly that I had, which I think are, they're real, they're based on something fundamental for me right. they come from an inner truth now if this and man was trying to rape my wife and i hit him across the face and sent him to the hospital what would you say about that i'd say that was completely justified okay but you were just describing a situation in which i struck a man across the face and sent him to the yeah, hospital I, did, I didn't come up with a detail but, but you didn't yeah. know you don't know what's going on 
You're only picking out, the striking him across the face, sending him to the hospital, and you say, oh, he's, he's not conscious, he's not alive, because he struck someone across the face and sent him to the hospital. Well, I should have used the word, um, you know, there was but the, no... But the point is that you don't know. You don't know what's, what's behind an act, necessarily. And yet you're making a judgment about the person mm -hmm. and their state of consciousness. And you don't know. It's true I don't know, but I also know what I feel. Yes, but sometimes you're wrong, Ian. Okay. <laughs> we have about five minutes left. I, I want to I I move away because the program's about you, not about me. So yeah. let's, let's, let's try and use those last five minutes as positively as we can um, in getting your teaching out there. <laughs> Maybe we're doing that perfectly. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Because the teaching is difficult, and It's really challenging some very yeah. basic fundamental beliefs you have about things okay and and so it is important that and i'm not being gentle with you but i'm i'm really pushing you to look at some things that you are holding as truths I that you that, you, you, that yeah. you feel oh no this is the way it is this is true and saying let's take another look at that Ian, and yeah. see if it really is yeah so when you work with people over two days you've had a weekend yeah. workshop in, in mm -hmm. London what are the kind of what are the main things that come up for people that you see that are in their way Probably exactly <laughs> exactly what we just went through that they could, know that yeah. they already know and they say wait yeah. I feel this yeah. and and it, you know this I believe this deeply yeah. that this is true and it is what you believe and what you know to be true is what blocks you from directly seeing what is. And so what I do over the course of these weekends is expose as much as possible these beliefs that stop you from moving forward. Okay. Into a deeper seeing of what is. So I'm letting all this go away now and just sit right. with you. And Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Because that's the yeah. truth is here. Yeah. It is here. Yeah. It's funny, I, I just I didn't do a lot of preparation for the interview, but I watched a little bit of you on YouTube and I had a had a bit of a read through your uh -huh. book, which I must hold up at the end. <laughs> <laughs> do my job properly. <laughs> And, and the impression I had of you was, was quite different because w what comes across is the brightness from your eyes. Mm -hmm. And you have, a, you have a real, you're a big man, you were telling me you were six foot five tall. And you have a, you have a big presence, you have a very alive presence. And it's interesting because the impression I got before was you were a bit, you were a bit grumpy and going to be a bit difficult maybe. And uh, it's not the Wasn't case. I just being difficult? No, not at all. <laughs> You were being yourself, which is what I love, you know. I try and be myself, you're yeah. being yourself. And maybe we have different ideas of what self is, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I think you're also encouraging people to do, isn't it? To find as much as they can their authenticity. Right. And by authenticity, I mean themselves, their, their waveness to find out what they are as the wave. As seekers, 
people are often say, oh, let's chuck this wave part <laughs> and get to the ocean as yeah. if yeah. the wave was something else than the ocean. See, that's the fundamental split that we're trying to heal. Yeah. And of course, every wave is different. Like every human being is different. You, I exactly. guess you'd never find two waves exactly the same. That's right. And the organism we call the sage is a wave. We have a fantasy about that organism. But, and what, you can say, oh, he's now the ocean. <laughs> That's really what people are saying. Oh, now that wave knows he's the ocean. He's going to behave differently as a wave now that he knows that he's the ocean. But everyone's behaving the way that they behave because the ocean makes them behave that way. <laughs> Regardless of whether we call them a sage or not. So when you see what, what behavior is, that it's the, the movement of the ocean, and that there's behavior we like and behavior we don't like, it all comes clear. Hmm. Wayne, we're going to have to stop there. All right. The 50 minutes has gone very well, fast. It has gone fast, hasn't it? But I've enjoyed it a lot. I have too. And it's been stimulating, which good. Is, is always good. And I want to just uh, hold up Wayne's book here. Never mind a journey into a non-duality, which I think is a great title. And uh, thank Wayne again for coming. And thank you all for watching Conscious TV. And I hope we see you again soon. Goodbye.